so we don't actually have a good way to to start episodes uh with the lp show and we try and set a tone by making a little bit more conversational so um it just started tracy thanks for joining us yeah for sure thanks for having me uh listeners tracy is down with david in the wave capital podcasting studio i up here in uh in seattle you know, our main show with Acquired is about these big splashy exits that you've you've heard of. Um, Slack, Shopify, ESPN, and a lot of our LP episodes, which covers the nitty gritty of the journey along the way, have, have been about one of these companies too, like our product ops episode at Uber or growth at Airbnb. Um, and today we wanted to do an episode with a founder that is running a company that is much more emblematic of how most growth companies go most of the time. Uh, you know, getting a medium amount of press coverage, keeping extremely focused and diligent, um, putting in the hard work over a, a long period of time to build a, a sustainable and, and durable business. And so our guest today is Tracy Lawrence. Tracy is the founder and CEO of Choose, a 280-person company based in San Francisco that delivers family-style office meals from the best local restaurants to six cities in the U.S., uh, Tracy started Choose right out of college eight years ago in 2011. She's been named USC's Entrepreneur of the Year and raised over $30 million for Choose from venture firms like Foundry Group, which is how Tracy and I originally met at the Foundry CEO Summit a few years ago. Um, she has a really unique way that she runs and describes her company, a love company that I'm really excited to dive into this episode. So thank you so much for for joining us, Tracy. For sure. Yeah, let's talk about love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is going to be a first for Acquired, I think. Seriously. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> so I just threw out some numbers uh, and, and sort of like eight years ago, 2011, raised over 30 million. So how do you describe Choose? And can you tell us about the business today? Our mission is really to drive authentic connection. And in the workplace, I think that's the place where people are spending the most time and where it's lacking, especially when you look at sort of people 40 years ago that were starting families you know, in their early 20s, and now you're starting families much later. We kind of have this gap of time where it's like, we leave home, you know, we leave home for work opportunities, and then we're in our 20s, and we don't start families till our 30s. And work takes the brunt of it. Yeah, especially here in San Francisco. Yeah. I think San Francisco is, certainly in the US, maybe in the world, the city with the oldest average age of mothers when they give birth. Uh, Definitely I think in the US, it, yeah. it's San Francisco as well as DC. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. And New York, right? So a lot of the the big urban centers. So you know, our goal is is really to get people eating together. And uh, and so we're partnering with over 300 restaurants. Um and they're all local quality restaurants. My aunt, my grandmother and my mom were all in the restaurant industry. And when I started the company, it was because I was an event planner, but I saw that office managers wanted access to great local food and they were sick of Subway. So we work with offices, you know, over 500 companies across the U.S. that are want to order great local food. And we actually partner with the office managers at those offices and we build out sort of a calendar of meal programs. And so instead of them having to order for themselves and kind of pick off of a menu or call up a restaurant, like 90% of the industry is still calling up restaurants directly. We have technology that actually builds out the menus on behalf of our customers. It's the only technology in the space that does it. And uh, and then we're using software to do the last mile delivery as well and ensure a really high quality experience at the end because they're choose employees. And we could talk about that as part of the love company ethos. But it's a, it's kind of a different way of looking at the whole thing. How big and small customers do you have in terms of number of people in offices? Yeah, so the smallest is 15 people in the office. And then the largest, I think we've done 900-person offices. Wow. Yeah, but I'd say the range is about 15 to 500 usually. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So for food. like you're, you're doing offices with multiple hundred employees every day? Yes. Wow. Yes. It's a lot of food. It's a lot of food. I mean, it, what's funny is one of the uh, one of the ways that we're, we're now starting to work with like proper vans, but we used to use U-Hauls uh, to haul that much food. <laughs> I mean, for your standard order, like the driver can do it with their own car. But, you know, you have these big U-Hauls just loaded with food. And it's like, oh, yeah, this is a startup for sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. What is 
something that you are doing that is still uh, surprisingly incredibly scrappy given the scale that you operate at? Like what would what would surprise people? Like, wait, Choose is doing deliveries to 900 person offices and it's still done this way? <laughs> like with a U-Haul? <laughs> <laughs> we run a really tight ship. Even just earlier, less than a year ago, our HQ was still co-located with our warehouse in San Francisco. What people might be surprised about is actually, it, it, and it's kind of on the scrappy side on a cultural perspective, we have this, this practice called Attitudes of Gratitude. Basically, every Friday, we gather together, and every um, office, now that we have six or seven offices, they all gather together, usually on a Friday for half an hour, and they offer gratitude to one another. And we're nearly 300 people, and it still scales. The other surprising thing that, you know, was an experiment that's still scaling is um, open salaries. You know, I think people are surprised that that, that has worked, and, and it's something that's really important to our culture. So those are a few things. Open salaries can mean a lot of things. Do you do you literally have yes. like a spreadsheet where everybody's salary is is published, and does that include like other you know bonus type incentives? How does that work? So the philosophy behind it was actually that tra- it wasn't the transparency that mattered; um, it was fairness. So really, it should be called fair salaries, um, but that doesn't always get across the message um, as clearly as transparent. So. There are two components, um, and the transparency is the less important one. The more important one is that we have a salary formula that's based on your output. And it started because I, you know, when I was making offers, um, I found that women and engineers were not negotiating as hard mm-hmm. or at all for their salaries. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, within similar job bands, oftentimes in companies, people are compensated differently, not based on their you know, quality of their work, but right. based on their negotiating ability. Right. Which for sales makes sense, I guess, that you would correlate their output with their negotiation ability. But for engineering, for finance, it's like that shouldn't be what your pay is based on. And so I found I was I was paying women less than men. And I was like, oh, this is a problem. So now what we do is it's based on performance. And so you have a band, a salary range based on your role. And then you're either level A all the way down through G. And A is sort of entry level, um, and G is you're the unicorn, the only person, you know, in this role fit for it. Um, And that's a multiplier on the base. So that's the most important part. The secondary part to ensure that trust is built across the organization and to hold managers to a high standard of not making exceptions is transparency. We decided to publish one level of transparency, which is within the company. So everybody at the company knows my salary and my output and vice versa, but we do not publish it externally. And that was a decision we made as a company. Right. That makes sense. And so and yeah. so everybody knows like what letter everyone else is. And when you know everyone's letter, you yes. could you could back into their their salary. Yes, that's right. Well, no, we actually publish not just the letter, but also the salary. And there's a formula, so I guess you could do it without. But what we have found is that for for our top performers who are at the highest output level, you know, I've gotten feedback that they're like, I look at that and I say, I have to earn that every day because my peers know what I'm making. Um, so for the right players, it can actually be very motivating. Now, it has its challenges too, you know, because it takes a manager who can have really candid conversations, like hard conversations with their employees to say, here's why this is your output versus this person's, right? But we try to focus the conversation less on a comparison game and more on here's what you need to do structurally to get to the next output level. So it's not perfect, but um, I think it's a much better system than closed negotiation-based salaries. Yeah. And has it... Uh- has it equalized pay across functions and genders and uh, within the company? Yeah, I mean we've applied it across the company. Wow. Um, so it it does it does do that. Yeah, yeah, it's based on output. That's that's kind of the whole desired goal. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I know we're diving deep here, but when you're rolling that I out, because I think a lot of people have sort of considered this. Did you have to lower anyone's salary to switch onto this system? So uh, the first thing is that we started it, we rolled it out when we were maybe 12 or 15 people. So actually, we found that there were people that needed to come up more often than lower. No, we didn't need to lower anybody's salary. We also timed it with um, the uh, annual review, uh, well, not the review process, the annual um, market review process. So that's typically when people are naturally getting a bump to keep up with market. What I would say, though, is if I were to roll it out now at this level, 
let's say that you needed to lower someone's salary just based on the market, I would probably just grandfather them in, but make that public and say, hey, look, the this was technically supposed to be adjusted down. This is what their comp is. It's a little higher than band. It will be adjusted with their next output level increase. Mm -hmm. So at least you're just like, look, we're going to be fair to this person. We're not going to lower their salary. Because that's they pretty came in like, the demoralizing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, but you're you're building trust with the team. You're like, hey, when they get their next output level increase, they're going to fall within the band. And that's usually an increase up yeah. still. So it's kind of a win-win. Again, it, none of these systems are perfect, but building the trust is about being forthright about it yeah. and then being open to you know the conversations that come from it. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, should we... Rewind a bit back to how did how did you I'm end just here up? To mess this whole yeah, thing up. no, this is great. I mean, this is, the point of the LP show is like you know building companies is not a straight line, you know. Yeah, God and no. uh, the episodes aren't a straight line either. Totally. So how did you get from idea to to then the fifteen person company when you rolled this out? What were the early days of Choose like? So I uh, I was at USC and I was first off I had all these random part time jobs. So I was a food tour guide at one point with a company called Six it's Taste like Food Tours. Amazing job title. It was a hell of a job. It was like <laughs> you were not just, you know, a um, museum curator um, and docent, but also like a kindergarten teacher because you had to like wrangle people and get them to stop eating <laughs> and move and then start eating. And um, But I used to take people on food walking tours in downtown L.A. And... Then I was also an event planner. So I was helping plan out food for events like TEDx USC um, and feeding thousands of people. But it wasn't until, and then I, I actually did a first startup and it was called the Dish Dash at USC. And that was almost like an early Foursquare for students to check in, but to get discounts at local restaurants. And it's because I love downtown LA. My parents, um, who are also entrepreneurs, were in the clothing business, and they had offices down there. So I grew up uh, in downtown. And this is way before downtown LA was cool again. Way before. Like, way, nobody yes. went to downtown <laughs> No LA. one went to... Yeah. I was like hanging out in downtown in the 90s, you know? Oh, man. And... Uh, <laughs> It's, you survived. Yeah, and I survived. Look, I'm in one piece. So I wanted people, and, and I saw people at USC that just really hated downtown, and, and I wanted them to fall in love with the city, so I thought it would happen through food. So that's kind of what got me into all these jobs. Um, and then as when I started the Dish Dash, you know, it, things kind of naturally happened. So the restaurants that I was partnering with on that platform were telling me, you know, walk-in traffic is fine, but what about those student organizations that are ordering meals? We want to get into catering. And then office managers started to find me from my event planning side and go, listen, I know we order for events, but I'm spending thousands of dollars on food every month for like my 30-person team meetings. And we're ordering from Subway and we're sick of it. And I was like, this is, okay, there's an opportunity here. And when I started to go through the workflow, like my first customer, Erin Stumpf at USC Stevens Center, um, I remember she was like, okay, I've got this, I've got this catering. And I was like, this is going to be super easy. 30 people, no problem. I've got all these restaurants on lockdown. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I had to call up all these restaurants and they were like, yeah, listen, can't meet that budget. Sorry, we don't do delivery. You're going to have to pick it up. Oh, that's outside of our delivery radius. Ooh, you've got a nut allergy. Sorry, we, we can't guarantee that. Oh, man. When I was at uh, in business school at Stanford, I was uh, doing a bunch of this for, uh, for Stardex for the, uh, like, you know, we would do founder dinners and, like, I'd take care of the food and, like, man, it's yeah. hard. <laughs> it's real. It was really hard, especially now where 60% of Americans have some sort of dietary restriction. It's, you know, we are picky employees now. So that was when I was like, hmm. I, and I did my first order, and it was through an e-fax line and a Word document template. So it was $10 a month, and that was my startup cost. And I just started to transact orders. And I, I asked the restaurants, I was like, what if I took an 8% commission on every order that I sent you? And I was sending them like 200 to $500 orders. And they're like, yeah, easy. It was incremental revenue for them. So, and it's funny because the pitch to restaurants, although the technology is robust now and we actually have a ton more customers, the pitch is fundamentally the same. It's like, 
We're going to bring you incremental revenue that's super high value and that's recurring. Yeah, high margin. And high margin. You don't, there's no table space that you need for this. You can cook during off hours. Right. Like you're getting, you're getting more mileage out of your fixed costs. Exactly. Because that's, that's the cool thing about the marketplace approach, right? We do not use our own kitchens. It's asset light. And this is so critical to the model. It would be way too expensive to build our own kitchens in every single place, uh, city that we're in. But we help the restaurants because they're cooking during their off hours. So between 9 a.m. to 11.30 a.m., when they're not getting the walk-in lunch traffic, that's and that's when they're using Choose. And we're booking out four to six weeks in advance mm-hmm. because we're not an on-demand service. So they know they can ingredient plan and... And labor plan. Labor plan, yeah. Yeah. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout Quarter's. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R no e q u a r t r dot com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team our thanks to quarter so we live in a world right now where over the last five years food delivery has become you know hotter than the beach i would assume when all these same restaurants or lots of the same restaurants are being approached by the DoorDashes and the Uber Eats of the world, they must love the model that you come to them with, which is it's predictable and it's bulk orders rather than sort of this like on demand and you have to prioritize us right now. Right. This is why Choose, this is the perfect timing for this company to be built now because any earlier and you wouldn't have had these third-party aggregators knock down the door already for these restaurants. These restaurants are like, they're prime for it. They're like, okay, okay, so we work with an aggregator now. What do you guys do that's different? And then we're like, oh, yeah, our average order values between $500 to $1,000. It's triple the margin. It's going to be recurring. And the restaurants are just like, wow, that makes a ton of sense. Um, so it, it is a very different sale for them. But I'm actually pretty grateful, right? And when I think about, you know, for founders who are founding companies, like being – the first to market in a category can be important, but like in our specific category of corporate, that's important. But the larger category of food delivery, way better that Uber Eats burn through a ton of their sales dollars to yep. break down the doors for us so that when we go in, the sales relatively simple. Yeah. Market yeah. education. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Where's the trade-off there? Does it come when they're saying, how are you different? And you're like, we're better in every way for you. Does <laughs> Is there a um, take rate trade-off that you make where your take rate is lower than, say, DoorDash or someone like that on a given order? Well, that's the other thing that we figured out 
about the model. So it's it's not only that we're corporate and we figured out innovations on sort of the technology, but there's also the business model innovations, which can get nerdy really fast, but kind of fun when you think about like profit and money. But what we figured out, we started with the take rate. And we were like, we realized that we were totally capping ourselves, you know, let's call it a 20, 25% take rate. We capped ourselves because we could build orders in advance. What we realized is we're actually a bulk buyer. And so we started to treat ourselves more like that. And then to negotiate discounts based on the volume that we're sending to restaurants in advance. And so that yields us margins that are certainly much higher than the 25% take rate. If I'm hearing you right, it sounds like you sort of flipped your mindset from we take a take rate to we are going to buy your food at a negotiated price that is less than if I walked into your restaurant. Correct. Correct. And we're going to build the infrastructure, like the technology infrastructure to help you plan it in advance. Yeah. So that way you can improve your margins and you get more operating leverage out of each order that we send you in advance. So now we can take even more of like an ecosystem approach to say, we want the local restaurants to succeed. You know, we're not out to gouge them or like squeeze blood from a stone. Um, so now we can take like a thoughtful planning perspective and a technology perspective. To yeah. It. Well, in this playbook, I feel like we are uh, at Wave, you know, we, we focus on marketplace investing in marketplace businesses. Mm. We see this almost all the time now with B2B marketplaces of like, in so many markets, you can't go into an existing function functioning B2B market and say, I am a marketplace. I am a technology company. You have to meet the the players where they're at. And the way to do that is rather than saying, I'm a marketplace, I'm gonna take a take rate, you just like, I'm gonna transact how you are used to transacting, you know? And uh, uh, so many times like we see, w- once companies really start to figure things out, it's when they come to that realization. Like, how can we go with the forces in the market, not against them? Yeah, it's. I have found it as a fine balance between evolving the behavior and fundamentally changing it. Mm-hmm. Thinking of ourselves as a bulk buyer is a is an evolution. It's but it's still not natural, I wouldn't say. As a restaurant, you might work with a large company and say, "Okay, because you're you're buying in bulk, we're going to give you discounts." But you're typically not contracting and you don't have tiers of prices and mm. so it's like a little bit of, "Okay, we're going to take current behavior, but we're going to update it a little yeah. bit." They actually work with us because we're sending them so much volume. Yeah. We know what they're motivated by, which is the incremental revenue. So it is it is a bit of a balance. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. And sometimes we've pushed it too far where we've been like, we're going to try this totally different thing. And they're like, what? And then we add way more time to the sales cycle than is necessary. And we feel good about ourselves. And it's like, okay, let's like yeah. let's not innovate. These for aren't the sake SaaS of companies. These are restaurants. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Got it. The next question that I have teed up here is around product market fit. I was having this discussion with some of my coworkers last night and they were asking me, you know, how, how do you define product market fit? And I was, you know, there's the Mark Andreessen famous passage and there's all these different ways to describe it. As you were evolving Choose, how did, like, what are some markers that showed up for you that were signals that say, oh, I have product market fit now and the world is different because X, Y, Z? You know, as you're starting, especially in the first $10 million of sales, it's like you are tackling a ton of different markets. And you're starting to figure out like, ooh, what's feeling right, what's not. So there's various levels of product market fit. In the beginning, we were mostly event planner driven. So we had office managers, but that was my base. I knew event planners. When we knew, I can tell you what product market fit does not look like, right? And and so that (laughs) was always easier to define. Yeah, Yeah. a little bit. And then somehow we'll we'll get there over the course (laughs) of a lifetime. Uh, But you know, we we start with the event planners, but they weren't. There wasn't a high reorder rate. And so then we we got qualitative and we call them and we're like, hey, how come you're not using us all the time? They're like, yeah, we only have events every three months. Not really that top of mind. So that's one area where we're like, huh. And, and so our first model evolution to get product market fit based on that feedback was when we called office managers and, and we saw their reorder rates were slightly higher, but we knew that there were gaps that they weren't ordering with us from. And our first platform looked more like a seamless. It was, you know, or a Grubhub where you go online and you look at the interface and you pick your orders and they go, look, that's fine for two people, but at 200 people, it's just not easy. I don't know how much a tray actually feeds. If it says five to 10, which tons of catering menus say that, uh, does it feed five or 10? Um, I can't go over budget, but I don't want people to go hungry. And so our first big innovation was, oh, we'll build the menus for you. 
Like we'll take on the expertise mm. of that. And then, you know, we took the product market fit approach of like, okay, let's build a, a hypothesis of what we want to see. And we saw reorder rates shoot up. So that was kind of one way that we were like, oh, we're on to something. And then, of course, you see growth metrics go up. But I think in the early days, it's just a lot of like listening to the customers. Then we had another when point. You, uh, yeah. To double click for one second. Yeah. When you were building the menus for customers, how did you do that in the early? I mean, I assume it was just like you guys were like, all right. People. Uh, I, I, we, so how are you doing in the early days? And then how are you doing it now? Like, did you productize that over time? Or yeah. like? Yeah. I mean, in the beginning, it was it was me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was going on and looking at their menus. And, and I also had the relationship with the restaurant. So I sort of knew what a tray would feed. I knew what what items, what appetizer would pair with what main and what would feed what budget, right? I mean, it's basically I was the algorithm. Yeah. Um, and then at the first level of scaling it was teaching our first account manager how to do it. And then she became the algorithm. Then she scaled out a team of human algorithms. And then, then we started to realize like this is this is not scaling, or it's scaling linearly, right? And this will not scale exponentially. And so then we what we did is we structured the data from the restaurants and built out a system where we could say, okay, let's assign tags, um, prices, portions, quantities, and combinations of menu items, and then let's also take the customer preferences and input those and the system can match. And now the system is far superior to what I could do, not just at scale, but in accuracy. And like we build the perfect menu every time. Yeah. Um, but it had to get there in order for us to scale. That That's awesome. Yeah. So I think the product market fit question is just a constant. For us, it's been, I have that paranoia that we've that we never hit product market fit. I never want to feel like we have. Because even great companies, uh, the gaming companies, man, are, are big examples of this, right? You can hit product market fit. They're just extreme examples. You hit product market fit for a couple quarters, and then every, and all of a sudden, it just drops off. And it's like, I, I kind of want to approach us like that, especially because the trends of in food delivery can rise and fall. And so I'm constantly thinking, what's next, what's next? And I think for us, the the next steps are how do you use data and intelligence to build the perfect menu in a environment where people, it's a convenience economy. People are on the go. You can use your phone to order Uber or groceries. Um, how do you do that for the ordering environment as well? That might last a couple years. Then what's next? So I, I don't I don't know that we have I don't know that we will ever have product market fit. That's why I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a it's a spectrum, right? Like spectrum. you have more than when you were working with event planners. Hell yeah, <laughs> that's true. That makes me feel better. <laughs> well, it's like the uh, the Andy Grove quote: "Only the paranoid survive." I think uh, uh, better yeah. better to be paranoid than than sort of happy and and or fat and happy, as they say. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole conversation there about mental health because I believe it, but I hate it. Because the paranoia is the thing that I think, taken incorrectly, I think it can create a lot of uh, emotional damage to constantly be paranoid, to to feel like in order to be a founder, you have to stay awake at night constantly thinking about this. And I, I want to challenge that for myself and and hopefully the ecosystem. But I think the mindset and the attitude when it is appropriate of being of constantly looking ahead is very yeah. helpful. Yeah, that's such a such a good point. You know, both of us have many friends at Amazon. I think they've done a pretty good job of institutionalizing like the focus on the customer. And like they have so, you know, like corny sayings of like, we're going to leave an empty chair in the conference room for the customer, yeah, you know, yeah, and it's right. like, but um, that's the best that I can think of, of like a way to like just try and <laughs> have some grounding in like, you know, not necessarily paranoia, but like customer focus. But anyway, yeah, it's so hard. Right, right. Well, it, it's also the language that we apply to it. You can call it paranoia or you could call it innovation, you know? So I think, and I mean, the language doesn't matter if the feeling's the same, but I'm just, I don't know. This is all an experiment that I'm running eight years in of how do I update my mindset to want to approach things with sort of like activating the pleasure center more than the pain center. Yeah. Because I, I am more likely to move away from pain and towards pleasure. So why don't I make innovation a game and bring play, literally playfulness into it? And I see too many founders burn out because they've lost play and alignment with their mission and their cultures. Yeah. Yeah. It's so prescient and so true that 
in a lot of these companies, you're trying to make an experience, in every company, you're trying to make an existing experience better for someone. When the human brain is under a lot of duress and stress, it's really hard to be creative and work on the very thing that got you to start the company in the first place, which is making something better by letting yourself be creative and letting yourself come up with better solutions than exist. And it's, I think, a really astute point and worth a much longer discussion at some point that the environment of founding a company creates an incredible amount of stress, or let's say working at a startup, working at a high growth company creates an incredible amount of stress that is literally antithetical to the mission that the company is on. It's like the environment by default conflicts with the mission. Finding the right way to thread that needle so that you can stay high growth and you know keep a, a a sense of urgency while still allowing for that creativity and solving customer problems, that's the miracle of life. Right, right. And I I know too many founders who start off on the journey saying, "I wanted to do this to work with my best friends." Yeah. And then five years into it, they hate their best friends. They fired most of them. They lack alignment with what their mission is because to get product market fit, they actually had to swing away from the original idea and they are so burnt out. Sometimes it's just like, can we go back to why you started this company? Like what was the real, real reason? Uh, And then we kind of, you can work backwards and make choices from there. All right. So this is a pretty, a pretty good segue. So Tracy, you started a love company. What does that mean? Like you started a, a food delivery catering company, but you also started a love company. So where do, where do those things meet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, love and food. Um, so a, uh, back in college, there was a organization that my wife was part of that uh, literally the motto was food equals love. So <laughs> yes, yes. It's like, where, the, where don't they meet? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think when people say that like they started the company and they knew exactly what they wanted to start, it's 95% of the time's bullshit. So when I started, I, you know, as I shared, you know, I was an event planner and I saw this big opportunity and, and I was like, cool, there's a market opportunity, there's a need. I think there were two underlying factors I wasn't really being conscious of, but they drive me to this day. One was a deep love for my city. I still feel a strong affinity to downtown LA and and all of the food entrepreneurs in that city. And that scales to every market that we're in. I adore the food entrepreneurs there. Um, the second thing I actually discovered three years into it. So oddly enough, and Ben, I don't know if you know this story, but I ended up through a series of introductions meeting Jerry Colonna of Reboot and um, I got a sponsorship to go to his boot camp. Uh, it's a CEO boot camp. It's like three or four days out in the mountains of Colorado. It's beautiful. And 15 CEOs from pre-fundraising to exit and earn out. And not one of them was happy. And, uh, you know, I'm like 24 or something. And I'm like, what? You're not happy? And they're like, yeah. You know, like, and it's like, okay, wow. Um, it's not really outcome-based. And so we started to talk pretty deeply about our childhoods, our pasts, our motivations. And the thing that came up for me was being bullied. I was sharing the story when I was 10 years old. I used to be bullied so badly, I would eat lunch in the bathroom stall. And at that point, I was feeling very emotional. I still get a little emotional talking about it. And Jerry walks over to me and he looks at me and he just says, what does your company do again? And I said, we make sure nobody eats lunch alone. And in that moment, it felt like 30,000 volts of electricity went through my body. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, I never put the past together with the present. I realized that I started Choose from a place of, like, deep love for that younger version of myself and a deep desire for people to connect together. And so when I came back to the company, not only with this kind of reimagined um, sort of motivation for love, but also a big part of Jerry's work is to provide emotional intelligence and skill sets and vulnerability to leaders. With those two things combined, I was like, we did this out of love. And the team just rallied around it. And I got to tell you, the love company idea was pretty organic. I don't even know who came up with the phrase. I don't think I did. It was an upwelling. And it was so natural. And so where we've come to with it today and what it means 
is it's a high EQ organization that cares about the human and demands excellence, like finding the balance of love and excellence. To wrap that story, what I don't think you know, Ben, and I, and I often forget to tell people is I found out later that that sponsorship to that boot camp was through Brad Feld. And this was before Foundry ever invested in us. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then a year or two after that, they, they led our Series A. Wow. How did Brad and Foundry end up a sponsor? Like, had you met them before? No. Or? No, wow. it was an introduction through a dear friend of mine, Matt Ellis, who is in the Foundry portfolio and connected me to Jerry. And I think they just had it as a placeholder. Like, I don't think it was specific to me. They just had it as a placeholder. I think that's where it happened. It's just a weird, wacky universe of, of things. Wow, Thank that's goodness. so great. Yeah, yeah, Foundry's, I mean, Foundry is an investor in all three of our organizations. Oh, wow, so. hell yeah. <laughs> we could, This uh, could turn great. into a love fest about Foundry quickly, but um, they're the real deal. Yeah, well, no more... Uh, there's plenty of other, you know, us and other uh, folks singing their praises, which are well-deserved. Um, yeah, that's so cool. What a cool story. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, yeah, you're welcome. It's It was powerful, you know, and and I think as we've evolved the love company, where it, where it started was, and where we had to evolve it, it started with us just being so much on the care side that actually we weren't, um, we had missed out on sort of the excellent side. And so... It was in that place when we realized that people were like, a love company wouldn't fire people. And we we're like, ooh, this is this is a problem. This was my, and I'll take responsibility. Like, we're still building a company, right? Um, you know, and so that's when we evolved it to add the second pillar, which is excellence. So it has taken an evolution. But in being so, and one thing I say to founders is, get really polarizing about your culture. Because for us, I was afraid to call ourselves a love company for a long time. But now when we talk to potential recruits, like they either love or hate it. <laughs> Some people are like, uh, you know what? I don't, th this emotional work that you guys do, expressing gratitude, checking in with an one another vulnerability, I don't want to do that at work. Like, I just want to go in, do a great job and leave. We're like, cool. Great. So, you so work glad. somewhere yeah, else. Exactly. Like <laughs> exactly. And now, um, but then the people who just are rapid, uh, like evangelists for us, they, they've joined the company. So being polarizing was scary at first. It still is scary. Um, but it's helped us recruit like the best culture fits. That's that's so awesome. It's like, yeah, there, there's Netflix for you guys. Like, yeah. you know, like right. they have a super strong culture too. And totally. like they embrace it. And like, you right. know, it's you a strong in a love, different you shouldn't direction. work here. You yeah. Know? Like, but, exactly. Yeah. Having strong cultural statements like that is like getting to change the the rules on the field of which you're playing. You're no longer like competing dollar for dollar or, uh, you know, against another company for what commodity company can I go work for? You have a completely differentiated offering for people to to consider as their workplace. Right. And I do think about our culture as a product. So how do you differentiate in a really hot talent market? And so at, like a product, it has certain features, you know, open salaries as a feature. Attitudes of gratitude, our gratitude ritual is a feature. Uh, vulnerability is a feature. And vulnerability as a leadership style is a feature. And so then you've got, I mean, it, it really does act like its own product. Yeah. I feel like uh, listeners who aren't in the Bay Area might not appreciate this, but like, to give you like some huge props, like to have recruit 280 employees, I'm sure not all of them are in the Bay Area. You said you have you know seven offices you know, across the nation, but like a lot in the Bay Area uh, in this insane talent market here, being in food delivery with, you know, 16 <laughs> yeah. other food delivery companies here, like it really speaks to the power of your of your culture. Like, Thank you. I'm very proud of sort of the the integrity of which we've built the culture. Um, and it's constant adjusting. You know, sometimes I'm like, ooh, are we being vulnerable enough? Or, you know, and and I can lose that that path and then I have to come back to it. But it is the thing that people join for. And because we put such a premium on the mission and the culture, we're held to a high standard on it too. That's something that like you have to accept in building a very opinionated culture, that the company, that the individuals, the humans at the company are like, all right, you sold me in this culture. We better live up to it. <laughs> yeah. Here's some tough feedback, you know, <laughs> and it's like the check. Bring it on. Yeah, yeah let's do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Always got to pay the cost. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> you know, we talk a lot about fundraising on this show, but Tracy, I think you've helped so many others through their fundraises and you yourself have gone through really, really great ones and really hard ones. 
So I got to take some time to ask you the questions. What's worked well for you and, and what hasn't as you've thought about capitalizing the company? I mean, 33 million bucks is a lot to raise. You're talking to a lot of different investor groups over many years. Yeah, I mean, I'll avoid the tactical for now unless it, it becomes really important. I think the mindset, the authenticity of the mindset. So I had my own hangups that I will take ownership over that were personal insecurities. So when I was raising my Series A, I cut my hair really short. I was wearing Converse and I was wearing shirts and I was like trying to be kind of androgynous. And I had this hang up about being a woman fundraising and fundraising for a love culture nonetheless. You know, I was like, oh God, this is a big softie. And I had gotten feedback from an investor. What, uh, what year was this? 2015. Okay. I had gotten feedback from an investor from a previous financing during the seed stage who we had gone through a ton of diligence with and who had come in and, and you know, he, or he was about to come in to meet the leadership team. And he calls me up that morning, like in dramatic fashion. And he goes, listen, I, I, um, I've spoken to your customers. They say that your service is the best thing that's ever happened to them at work. Unfortunately, we cannot invest and I won't be showing up today. And I'm like, why? And he goes, he's like, frankly, um, this is a very difficult industry and it's going to require a lot of hand-to-hand combat and we don't have conviction that you're out for blood. That just devastated me. Um, I, I At the time, I was probably 22 or 23 and, um, you know, building a company as your first job, first time CEO, it's like there's a lot of um, contending with yourself and your personality and learning um, for me, learning who I am and what I'm what I'm not. But I was extremely impressionable. And so I took the message there and I said, fine, I'll just never show investors that side of me that's that's caring and loving. And so I go into the Series A, I sort of like dress up like a guy because I'm like, they'll never know. <laughs> um, yeah, right. That that wasn't that that didn't work. So then we end so up. So ironic that you Foundry ends up, you know, investing. Which well, like, you know, <laughs> I know that's probably a turnoff for them that you're like not caring. Exactly. <laughs> and 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 the thing that changed at the end of that process, where we had littered with rejections, we're meeting with them at um, at lunch uh, in Boulder, and it's three of the partners are there, and Brad just asks a simple question. He's like, "Tell me about the trajectory of your business and what you want to build." And something clicked in me. Something clicked in me because we were close to cash out. And I was... How much had you raised before? And... Uh, before 1.7 million. Okay. So we're, we're close to cash out. And I was like... So you ran four years on 1.7 million. Yeah. I mean, wow. we the first few years, were, we were running very lean. But in that moment, I was like, you know what? If I If we close this company and I never get to tell my story, I will beat myself up forever. And so at that point, I was like, I'm going for it. And my co-founder is sitting there and he kind of like sees the spark of me. He's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And I just, I told him, I was like, you know what? We're building a love company and we want a love company to go public. And and I totally get it if that's not the journey that you want to go on. And after that, they pretty much invested on the spot. And so what's worked for me in the fundraise since then has been like, almost owning the parts of myself and the company that I feel the most fear or shame about. And I have this exercise now when I go out to fundraise where I list out all the things in my head that I feel ashamed of about the company that make me feel small or you know retracted. And I will share it with a very, very close audience around me. And they will help me get better perspective on it. And I will realize that that is just a negative thought in my head. But there are so many different ways to approach it. And so when my community, my tribe comes around me and helps me deal with that, I realize I just need to own the parts of me that draw shame. And and someone told me shame is like a vampire. Like you keep it in the dark and it just feeds and gets stronger. You expose it to light and then it just disappears. And so I think Owning the parts that feel shameful, that feel scary, that don't feel in alignment with the tech culture, owning that, it's kind of like owning the love culture. There are people who are going to, investors are going to look at you and go, God, I would never invest in a food startup, right? 
Or I could look at it and go, this is a rapidly growing industry and consumer food delivery has come online. It's a no-brainer. Corporate's going to come online. It's 10% online right now um, and own it, right? Two different ways of looking at the exact same thing. Um, so I think just owning the things that that lie beneath the surface. Yeah. Well, and there's also, you know, we've talked about a bunch on this show. I think it goes back to, to Amazon of like, you get the shareholders you ask for, you know, and like... You could like try and pretend that you're like some, you know, traditional, you know, Mark Zuckerberg-y startup, you know, like tech, you know, high gross margin, blah, blah, blah. And then you could try and fool some investors into thinking that. Or you could just be like, this is what we are, you know? <laughs> right, right. And I, I think the problem is you accrue, you take on a debt and it's an authenticity debt. If you're inauthentic and that's how you start the relationship, much like dating, eventually you're going to pay that debt down. And if that relationship lasts too long and all of a sudden the real you comes out and the other person's like, wait, I was sold on a different product, mm -hmm. you know, you're just buying time. And I think that can create a lot of anxiety. You come across on this podcast, I'm sure listeners are listening and like, you're so poised, you understand your business so well, like, you know shoot like you know we would love to come work for you right like <laughs> but i'm sure you didn't look like that when you were in college and starting this company like are there things looking back now that you could see like in yourself or that other people saw in you of like there's potential here like what separated you from all the other people who started businesses at the time and like nine years later they're not running their businesses it's probably still a chip on my shoulder but it's a little bit better now um i had deep insecurities about my age my age, but more so that I didn't have experience, that I'd never worked anywhere before and certainly didn't have any brand names on my resume. Um, so I, I sometimes ask myself the question, I ask my early investors that question, why the hell did you invest in me <laughs> when I was freaking, you know, 20, 21, raising money? And so I, I try to take an objective look at it. And I think over time, the thing, I think about endurance and resilience, but what is that really? Like, what are the components of it? And the first, so again, let's look to the non-resilient founders in my community who I adore, by the way, um, and love them. And and when I see a founder flame out, it is often, first off, because they have lacked alignment with their mission. So they've had to pivot away from the thing they actually love to the market opportunity that they do not care about. That can last for a bit. Um but over time, that will erode you internally. And I've seen that happen to many a, a team and a founder. The second is misalignment with the culture. If all of a sudden they've got a culture that's that they're building that just doesn't reflect them at all, doesn't reflect the early joys, the early authenticity, the early sharing, and it evolves over time. But if it doesn't fall within the same direction, um, founders resent their companies. And so I have... And, and I would consider it sort of a selfishness that is generous. Um, but I have been looking back, and I wouldn't have called it this, but now looking back, I think I was quite selfish in saying I cannot stand a culture that will not be um, vulnerable and will not care about others. I could not work at that company. So I will hold this company in line to those principles. And so when I have very down moments and I have many of them. The idea of leaving the company is not on my radar. And it is because I still have the hope and that youthfulness and that joy that comes with the alignment. So when it's hard, I go, but I'm still building the culture that I love. Mm -hmm. If I didn't have that, I would be thinking about leaving all the time. I don't know how you would, I don't, I really don't know how you could stay aligned with a company if I'm being very, very honest. Yeah. Yeah, totally. You know, it's so funny. We, one of our investments uh, that uh, ben knows we we've talked about you know we invested in a founder and a founding team that was pursuing a market opportunity and then they got you know a few months into the product and the team and they're just like this industry and market is not what doesn't reflect you know who i am or who i want to be you know it was fortunately early enough in the company that we could just be like all right well let's stop doing that and let's do something else then we spent a couple months we figured out something else they're actually doing something else in food <laughs> consumers oh, not funny. enterprise <laughs> uh, but it's just like it's like night and day looking at you know the company but also the founders of just like you know they're fired up and like in a way that before it was like every day was like dragging themselves out of bed you know right and 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 there's this badge of honor with that but there's no nobility in suffering 
no nobility for your team or your customers to suffer that long. And eventually, again, it's a debt. You'll pay it down. Companies that are larger where that happens, you know, it doesn't mean the answer is to shut down. You know, there's graceful ways of transitioning power to a CEO and a team that love doing that, right? That love that mission and love that culture. I think that's the other lesson that I've been learning about how to unwind my identity from the identity of the company to recognize it may be best for the company to make decisions, you know, to have a CEO that's not me. That could be a like, that's a question I'm constantly pinging myself with. Am I the right CEO? Am I aligned with the mission? Am I aligned with the culture? And if the if the response back is no, then then I have a few branches. Do I make changes to bring it back to alignment or am I, do I find a different leader? There's shades of, you know, there's plenty other branches there, but that's, that's kind of the rough tree and path that I think of. And when I'm energized, the team loves it. So, and it's like, life is far too short. I'm starting to get more perspective. I just turned 30. Like, what do you do? Um, Welcome to, uh, you know. Oh, I feel I now love it. experienced. Still having many decades ahead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm experienced. Yeah, yeah. All right. my insecurities are gone. Yeah, you turn totally 30 and they all melt away. Yeah. Yeah, right. That's what you I expected. You don't understand TikTok. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, but, you know, it's, it's, I think ultimately it's about the honesty with oneself. When you're honest with yourself, then I, when I am honest with myself, I can radiate that honesty to um, my team, my investors, my family, friends, boyfriend, my industry. Um, but it has to start internally. Otherwise, mm-hmm. lying to yourself will serve yeah. nobody. Yeah, totally. it's, it's crazy how it's obvious. Like, even though hmm. it's not explicit and you're not telling other people, like, you know, I'm grinning right now because I feel really great about what we're doing and I'm personally motivated by it. And it's it's right. laced with every verbal and nonverbal cue that you have. And I think it, you know, we talk a lot about on the show of, of something that David and I both look for in founders is uh, uh, someone who's a magnet for talent and has an ability to uniquely recruit where, you know, it's so hard to recruit people. And really what you're doing is you're building this huge coalition of people that are willing to, you know, all go and do this same mission with you. And you're so right that a major component of that is once you're honest with yourself, once you're you're aligned and excited about what you're doing, you just naturally have this sort of energy where everyone feels at peace around you because you feel at peace with yourself. Right. And for me, I have I have a village. I've got a therapist. I've got an executive coach. I've got a um, a peer group of other CEOs and founders that I can talk to and they help me see my blind spots. Cause you know, being able to be that real with yourself, like is not an exercise done alone. Um, people think it is. I used to think it was, I thought that was strength, you know, not to burden other people with it or reveal those weaknesses, but they see things about me that I don't see. And then when they share with me, I can give them the underlying context that they don't see either. And then we come to radical insights about myself that I can then use to power my energy as an as a human and as a CEO. How long did it take you to build that sort of village? You know, <laughs> and how intentional did you have? Because I assume, you know, I'm I'm imagining in the early years of the business, you were living with all that yourself, and then now you're not. But like, you you probably had to be pretty intentional about building this. There have been a few key points where it almost felt like I didn't have a choice. Last year, about this time, um, I was supposed to be married and my ex-fiance walked out on me. And I'll tell you, that was a moment, that was a radical transformation for me because everything that I worked on in sort of developing my own inner resilience, and I think as entrepreneurs, we're all just like, we're so independent and self-reliant. I had to learn to be less self-reliant. I didn't feel like I had a choice. That kind of heartbreak is, you know, brought me to my knees. And so it was about reaching out. I mean, not only to my friends, but I had a, I had a conversation, a candid one with my board members too. Um, and they were very human and empathetic with me. So I, I think it's it's moments like that. It's been, you know, times in the business where, you know, you have to you have to fire somebody who's who you're super close to, who, you know, a co-founder leaves, right? Like, these are all the hard things that it's like, wow, I, I literally right now cannot do this on my own. And, um, and it is better to be supported by the community. And then seeing the benefits of that, it's like, 
it's like fresh growth. It's like, wow, okay, I need to be intentional now. Like I know what makes me feel better and I'm going to stop judging myself for it and just start building a community around me. But I kind of, you know, people told me that, but it was only, (laughs) it's only when you go through hell that you're like, okay, I need an angel. Yeah. Yeah. Man, it's like, uh, uh, in, in many ways probably mirrors the entrepreneur's journey you know itself of like yeah everybody's like well i know this is gonna be hard like right. intellectually you're like yeah this is gonna be hard but then you're like well, well now i'm deep in it you know right right and there's the yeah something shift shifts in me over multiple multiple years to get there yeah. wow um first thank you for sharing tracy um you're welcome yeah, yeah. this is the real stuff yeah <laughs> We've zeroed in really hard on founder mentality and founder support here. Do you think this notion of mission self-fit or mission self-alignment needs to occur with all your team members too? And and how do you how do you figure out who who it applies to and if it doesn't to some who it doesn't apply to? Where my thinking has evolved on this is I don't believe that there is always perfect alignment, you know, whether it's with the mission or even the val- the values are a good one, right? You you as a company may have three to 10 values mm-hmm. and it would be kind of ludicrous to say, I must find the person that perfectly overlaps with all of these. Um, hell, I don't even, right? But do I think that they are all good in nature and, and directionally do I feel aligned? Yes. I think the, um, I think it is important with the team, you know, our mission is about building authentic connection. Does that have to be the number one single driving force for every member on our team? No. But do they have to have quite a strong hook to it that may have come from their own challenges when they were young being bullied, um, their own experience at their last job where they felt unfairness, they felt alone, they felt dehumanized? Absolutely. And so if they can't relate, and often you get this out in the interview process where you just have a real authentic share, much mm-hmm. like I've done here. And then you see how people react. And do people, that also is a, it's another way of getting to high EQ too. Like, mm-hmm. can they can they empathize with the story? Can they relate to it? Can they share their own inner experience of it? And then does that all feel authentic? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to codify that. I know, you know, tech founders would be like, give me the playbook. <laughs> um, there's a, you know, there's a little bit of EQ Where's the here. algorithm for measuring this? Yeah, so. I know. I mean, who knows? That might be my next startup. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think there's, there's also like an inner knowing when you spend time with someone. Like, are they actually moved by it? Mm-hmm. Um, and you can sort of see it shining in their eyes. That's that's the way that I, I sort of think about it and feel it. And I'm sure I'm looking at facial expressions and other cues. But I, I do think, especially at leadership. So for the leadership levels, the standard that I hold, I hold them to a higher cultural standard. That is not to say that we hire anybody who is a cultural um, misfit anywhere in the organization. But at the leadership level, I think about if if I were to put them on MSNBC or CNN on an interview about Choose, I would trust them and be stoked that they were on the show, Mm -hmm. right? Representing Choose. And if I don't feel that way, then they're not going to be on my leadership team because that's how the rest of the organization needs to feel about them. Like, yeah, that is that person holds our culture just Mm -hmm. as well as me as the CEO can. Because if it's all on my shoulders, like A, selfishly, like that sucks and that's a lot of stress. But B, you know, I'm then I'm building an organization that doesn't scale Mm -hmm. beyond my ability to represent the culture. Yeah, yeah. Man, that's such a that's such a big transition point in a company's life cycle, right? Yeah. Like, because in the early days, like it, um, I would imagine a big reason why Foundry Group invested in you in your Series A is just that lunch with you, and they're like, "All right, we believe in Tracy," you know, like, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's actually it's like uh, I don't know that it's talked about enough, but I think that is a major, major inflection point for companies and in going from the early stage mm-hmm. to uh, you know growth stage, whatever you want to call it, but the next level. Um, is is bringing you know scaling that uh, persona right 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 and it's it's still a balancing act for me where there's the it, it it's it was very hard on me um, in in some ways the the delegation ways were kind of natural for me and I don't know why but I tend to start relationships from high trust it gets me burned sometimes but um, I think the upside is way bigger than the downside on that so uh, I, I I didn't have problems with that but. The problems were in the building the single relationship authentic connection and starting to realize that people were putting me on a pedestal. Whereas I'm like, hey, I'm a human. I've got plenty of insecurities. I'm happy to talk to you about that all day. Um, Because part of like, I feel like part of my personal 
one of my pieces of personal mission is to um, not do a disservice to other humans by saying that I'm crushing it and everything is great. I think it is a disservice and I, I'd rather allow people the space to be real by being real first. Um, and the one of the co-founders of Living Social once told me as a leader, you have to go first and you have to be the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, nobody else around you is going to be as vulnerable as you. So you are setting mm-hmm. that tone for everybody else to play with him. But it was, you know, it's and it's been sort of like, okay, how do I scale relationships? Because I'm a relational person. And also, how do I recognize that having the persona of the culture actually is a good thing? Right? There are good components to it that people see me as holding the culture. I just want to make sure that um, people also see the vulnerable sides of me, and they also don't think that I am the exclusive carrier of culture. Um, and so that is something that I actively work on with the team and, and our community of choosings, which is what we call them today. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. The company's been around for eight years now, right? You have 280 people. Um, has anybody left and started their own companies? Have any entrepreneurs come from Choose yet? I've seen folks go to earlier stage companies um, and build again or build even earlier. Um, I've seen folks go off and do sort of their own consulting businesses. I don't think I have. I'll, I'll have to think about that. What I have seen, though, is that people transfer the culture that they learn at Choose and try to bring it into new organizations. And that is... You know, that is that is what I imagine the pride of a parent is, Yeah, yeah. you know, of like, <laughs> wow, you know what, if one person leaves Choose and starts a company with, and they don't have to call it a love company, but with the ethos of emotional intelligence, I am proud. I've had some of the highest compliments that we've been paid is like when people say, I go home and I am a better partner. Um, or parent because of the emotional skill set that we learn here. Mm-hmm. Um, like, there's the game. Like, yeah, I'm, yeah, I die, awesome. I die happy. <laughs> <laughs> uh. All right, Tracy, we've gone through most of the the questions that I wanted to ask. Anything else you want to say to listeners out there, um, or other things that that you think people should know about you or choose? I do want to speak to women in the audience or anybody that is working with women that want to be founders in the tech system. So that's everybody. The thing that I have found um, in sort of the the post Me Too movement is that I am seeing a split. I'm seeing a split of women who are um, taking that, taking that energy and, and using it creatively. And then also women that are, uh, I call it the second box. So there's sort of the first box, which is like constraint, the world of constraints. And, you know, that's aging process. That's health issues, death. Um, we all have those boxes and, and yeah, things like racism and sexism. But I, I see women creating a second box around themselves. And the second box is smaller. And it's oftentimes us looking at the world exclusively through that lens. And it actually impairs women from starting companies or joining the ranks of tech. And I want to tell women that this is the best time ever to start companies and to join tech. And I, when I look at it, when I look at the funding that's going towards women, the support that women have from other women and from men, like this is the most supportive time to do this. And so no matter what you may hear in the press, you know, the negative stories, I want to elevate the story for women and minorities and anybody who's a non-traditional founder. And by the way, I think it's not just about gender or 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 sex or, or sexual orientation. Like non-traditional founders are people who like, you know, you could be a musician, right? But realize that there's a big problem in the space of music, but you're not traditional. You haven't, hell, you didn't get a college degree. I think this is the best time for that because you're seeing all these non-traditional founders. And I think there's an important, it adds to the technology space because we're adding a dimension of EQ, of actual diversity of experiences and thought because people from all walks of life are joining. Um, and I think it ultimately creates long-term value. And so I just, I want to I wanna lighten the mood for people. Um, and, you know, I've pitched, I've probably gone through 350 pitches now. And I'll tell you, not all the stories are like happy and positive, but I I know, Jesus. Um, but but the environment is still rather supportive. And now I walk into the room 
ask. And if I'm fundraising or doing a, a business deal, I'm like, as certainly as a woman, I'm like, everybody wants to help me. Mm-hmm. And it is so, so damn true. Um, and I, that's the story that I choose to tell myself. And so I, I, I would like that for, for anybody who's thinking of joining the ranks of tech or founding their own company to elevate the story for themselves. Yeah. Amen. And I think it's easy for, um, everybody to feel some degree of that, you know, no matter who you are, like, you know, when we were starting wave, we were like, well, we're all in our like early thirties. Like, it's pretty audacious for three of us to start a venture firm. Like, do we belong here? You know, like, even though, you know, I'm sure lots of other people on the outside were like, well, of course, like you guys are so, you know, pedigreed and like, that's a great voice because you can look at things on the outside and be like, oh man, Silicon Valley has never been more closed. Um, but it's yeah. not true. Like it's no. never been, you know, it's as open as it's always been, if not more so. And it's more always so. been very open. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's a good point because really the trick is it's not about whatever identity group that you belong to. These actually, these feelings of, of non-traditionalness at the individual level are universal. And every other founder feels it to mm-hmm. s- in some way, shape, or form. That's the ultimate truth that I've learned having interacted with hundreds of founders and leaders in, in technology. And so knowing that and knowing how relatable that is, is and be, now this the ecosystem is open to sharing it. I was on a panel about founder mental health at a VC conference. <laughs> I, like and and we all Imagine talked about I know we all talked openly about how we had therapists right and people were like wow things are changing things are changing and I'm sitting here in the ranks not as a journalist trying to get clickbait on you know their article right I'm sitting here in the ranks telling you that it is more supportive than ever before and you know I'll I'll give a quick shout out to All Rays which is a group that I'm a part of where they're elevating the story for women and helping women get introductions on VC and the operator side thousands of organizations like that Mm -hmm. so um yeah it's it's a great time to start a company yeah that's so awesome well tracy what you've built is amazing what you continue to build is amazing and probably uh, the the crown jewel on top of all of that the way that you've given back to the founder community um and the the level of transparency and openness that you have about everything that um you've gone through and learned that you can share with others is, uh, uh is really inspiring. Um, so thank, thank you so much you for, for doing thank all of that for, for coming for on the show. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Where can listeners find you? I am. Oh my God. Saying my handle out loud is hilarious. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm on Twitter at, at Jewish girl. It's because <laughs> I guess I didn't say this, but my mom is Chinese and my dad's Jewish. So my friends called me Jewish when I was growing up. And that's why we call the company choose. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Um, you could, you could find me at Jewish girl, um, Twitter and Instagram and, 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 Obviously, did the, did the Twitter handle precede the company? Uh, yes, it did. <laughs> uh, I, th- I think so. I think it did. Uh, and then at Choose as well. Um, you know, sharing your stories of vulnerability and um, and founding stories with with us, and you know, we'll promote it. You know, we our brand is built again on authenticity. So, um, happy what, to share uh, those. what cities are you guys operating in? We are in uh, L.A. Uh, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, Austin, and Chicago. So if you're an office that's ordering food for teams, again, from 15 to 500, um, please reach out. We'd love to feed you. Yeah. yeah. Great. Man, better than, uh, I'm waiting for you to uh, serve three-person teams. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> give give us a few years. Yeah. We, we got a long we're, vision we're to go here. We're not super profitable yeah. customers. <laughs> or for you to scale to 15. That's yeah. better. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's going to happen. But... <laughs> That'd be a very long time. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Awesome. Cool. Well, LPs, yeah, we will uh, we'll we'll hear you next time. Um, and thanks again, Tracy. Cool. Yeah, thank thank you. you.